0: We saw a news item about a 12-year-old boy named Caden Parson. Caden Parson is a reader. He also likes science. And uh, his parents thought a good gift for him Christmas Day would be a magnifying glass. And so they bought him a magnifying glass, imagining that it would help with his scientific endeavors. Of course, every child knows that a magnifying glass is sole purpose is to focus the sun's rays to burn holes and stuff, okay? We all knew that as children. And so after they opened their presents on Christmas Day, they live in McKinney, Texas, a suburb of Dallas. Uh, Caden and his two little brothers went out in the front yard to burn some paper, burn holes in the paper. Well, a breeze came up, went into their lawn, and bottom line is it burned down their front yard. And uh, you can see pictures of it online. Of course, that's no surprise to me, having lived in Dallas, really a lawn down there is not what we call a lawn. Uh, they use St. Augustine grass, which all we all know up here in the Northwest is just crab grass, and that's their lawn. And so in the winter, it's very dry, and it burned down the lawn, part of the neighbor's lawn. And uh, I was thinking about Psalm 127 and 128, which is about family and about children, And I wondered if the parents thought, behold, the children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward in Psalm 127. Uh, But they seem to take it in stride. In fact, if you want to look online, there's a picture of them out in their front yard with uh, garden hoses, and it even melted some of their Christmas lights. But what is fascinating is the whole family, the mom and the dad and the three children, are all wearing matching Christmas pajamas, And they're out there on Christmas morning putting out a lawn fire. And so it seems like they took it in stride, according to the reports that I've read. And uh, the mother is grateful that it wasn't worse. The neighbor is grateful that it wasn't worse. And uh, so they all go on living. But with great uh, Christmas stories for a lifetime, I'm sure they will all remember those things. But I was thinking of thankfulness and happiness. They seemed like a quite joyful family. Uh, and I wonder, though, if they took away his magnifying glass, or maybe that was the lesson he needed to learn for his scientific endeavors. But I was thinking of gratefulness and thankfulness in this new year, and as we enter 2020, and I was thinking of, uh, what does this year look like for you? And, uh, you know, even in the midst of adversity, as this family uh, with the burned-up front lawn expressed, they are very thankful for what they have and how it, uh, God protected them, basically, And I was reading a book, The Gift of Thanks, by Margaret Visser, and she uses three examples or images to convey the power of thankfulness or gratitude. And she talks about gratitude, a thankful heart, as being like soil, like a lubricant, and like a glue. And here she explains these things. Thankfulness is like soil. It refers to the disposition of the person to be grateful and the person's freedom to choose not to be grateful. It's a choice, obviously. Uh, The person is able to cultivate themselves into a grateful disposition. An ungrateful disposition, by contrast, is hard and dry, not easily moved by kindness and willing to be kind in return. In fact, in Europe, they refer, especially farmers, refer of poor soil as ungrateful soil. And so that's the first image that Margaret Visser uses as soil. The second one is a social lubricant, a lubricant. Gratitude is a social lubricant. It makes things move smoothly, it gives, and giving back are movements back and forth. When there is no gratitude, there is no meaningful movement, relationships become rocky, painful, cold, indifferent, unpleasant, and finally can break off altogether. The social machinery grinds to a halt. And, of course, we are seeing this on a nationwide scale uh, if you follow the news, which I would encourage you not to. But anyway, soil, lubricant, the third image that she uses is finally gratitude is the glue. It is the glue of relationship, and it points to the social cohesion between people and the relationships in modern society. Where we are fragmented, in danger of flying apart, gratitude is like a a filler, if you will, that will come in and patch up this moral cement that we need in our lives. It's kind of like a paste that is amazingly malleable, squeezing itself into the cracks and then solidifying and strengthening the social fabric of a nation, as well as relational fabric that each one of us have. And so she talks about that. And I was thinking about gratitude and thankfulness. And, of course, through the holiday season, I think uh, we as a people should be thankful and have great gratitude because of what Jesus Christ has done, what God has done in sending God the Son and taking on human flesh. And, of course, we know the purpose was to die in our place on the cross of Calvary, then to rise again from the dead, gaining the victory over sin and death and ascending to the right hand of the Father, where he intercedes for us and advocates for us. Because even though you may believe in Jesus for everlasting life, it doesn't mean that you live perfectly, does it? And so we need this great high priest in heaven who intercedes and advocates for us and loves us even in the midst of our sin and uh, problems and difficulties that we have. Well, we know that we live in an atmosphere, and as we enter 2020, it's probably only going to get worse as the election year is upon us. But we live in an atmosphere which can, it can, and it may erode our faith, dissipate our hope, and corrupt our love. And so we need to decide, and this is the time to decide, what is most important and lasting in each one of our lives and for the future of this year as God gives us our days. We need to take concrete steps to prioritize our dependence, and where that dependence lies. And so this morning, we are going to return to the book of the Psalms. We're going to return to the Psalms of Ascent. And if you would take your copy of Scripture and turn to Psalm 128. Psalm 128, I'll read it here in a moment, but first let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day of life, and thank you for blessing us with the freedom to meet here, Many uh, Christians around the world do not enjoy those freedoms. We thank you for your word in our own heart language. Many Christians around the world do not yet enjoy that privilege. We do pray for those in Bible translation that they would have perseverance, endurance, and great joy in the prospect of completing portions of the word of God, if not all the word of God, in heart language of other people. And Lord, we thank you for blessing us with this day of life. I thank you for each one here. We thank you for our guests who are with us, for family members who are with us. And Lord, we thank you for each family of Grace Point Church. We thank you that you are so faithful, you are so good, and you have given us freedom to meet here. We pray for our country at this very adverse and difficult time. We pray for our president, others in leadership as they deal with Iran and Iraq, and Lord, just the hot spots around the world. And we pray for them for wisdom, a dependence upon you for wisdom as they make decisions uh, that uh, are very difficult decisions to make. And Lord, we thank you and praise you for this day of life, for your sustaining presence, for your presence with us. And we pray now through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would teach us today from your word and from this portion of your word. In Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen and amen. If you take your copy of Scripture, and if you're able, would you stand as an act of worship as I read Psalm 128? Psalm 128, the Song of Ascents. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy, and it will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion, and may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Indeed, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Lord, we ask you now, through the power of your Spirit, open our hearts, minds, and lives, and implant your truth in us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be seated. If you've not been with us, uh, we started last fall uh, the series out of the Psalms of Ascents. There are 15 Psalms beginning in Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. We took a break over the holidays, and now we're back at Psalm 128. And these psalms of ascents were sung by Israel as they went up to worship at the Temple Mount those three times per year that God had commanded them to go up and worship him as a community, as a nation, as a people, God's chosen people. And so as they traveled from wherever they lived in Israel, they would go up because Jerusalem geographically was the the highest city in the land. And they would uh, go up by, uh, by mules, by donkeys, burrows, and by walking, and they would travel. And this is how they would remind themselves of why they were going. They would sing these psalms as they went along, and they would rehearse them. And this is how their children learned them. Because remember, they didn't have a Bible in their hands. They didn't have the scrolls other than the scrolls that were other places in the temple. Uh, So they had to memorize all of the scripture. And, of course, the Jewish people were known for great oral traditions. They would pass down the truth orally and and in perfection, and God superseded that. And he he superintended that so that it was accurate. And so these Psalms of Ascent were sung typically as they went up. And they break down into different portions here. Uh, There's five basic sets in these 15 psalms. On the back of your bulletin, you can see an overview of that. But we see that uh, usually there first of all was a psalm of distress, then of confidence in God, and then security in God, in the God of Mount Zion or Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And so there is this pattern going on. And Psalm 128 is a psalm of security. It's a wisdom psalm, the genre or the form of the psalm. Uh, is is a wisdom psalm, but it is one about security in what God is doing. And so these are the going up of the pilgrims to the annual feast, Passover in the spring, Pentecost in the summer, Day of Atonement in the fall, where all uh, observant Jews would observe those celebrations and they would go up to the Temple Mount. And these psalms really are a reflection of a spiritual journey, And as believers in Jesus Christ, whether you recognize it or not, you are on a spiritual journey. Perhaps we do not think of that very often, but we are. This is a journey. It's not a circular, never-ending cycle, but it is a Uh, a beginning and a conclusion, and we look forward to being in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is a journey that we're on in this life, and these are encouragements for the journey, and they have much to teach us about God, his providence, which, remember, providence is defined as God's constant care for and his absolute rule over all of creation for his own glory and for the good of his people it unveils for us a progression of thought as the people, the pilgrims, would make their way up to Jerusalem, and it finally comes to consummation when they actually arrive in Jerusalem and worship at the Temple Mount. Of course, that represented God's very presence in the Holy of Holies when the temple was built. Before that, it was the tabernacle, the residence of God, even though God cannot be contained in a building, yet it was symbolic of God's involvement with his people. And so for us, this Psalm 128 basically addresses three of the occupations that we're involved with uh, universally as a people. And uh, the individual life, our lives individually, our families, and then finally our national context. And it is a progression from the smallest, the individual, out to the greatest, the national context. And it makes us ask, what do all these things amount to? Does God care about me as an individual? Does he care about my family? Does he even care about us as a nation? And from us as individuals, to our family units, to the nation, there is happiness available to those who walk in God's ways. Psalm 127 and 128 both speak about the family. We looked at Psalm 127 a number of weeks ago now, but there are some things we need to understand and not misunderstand. First of all, we need to understand not to apply these as promises in one sense These are not saying that every follower of Christ will enjoy marital bliss, okay? There is no promise that you will have marital bliss in your life. It's not saying that the primary purpose of women is to bear lots and lots of children. We'll get to that in a moment, by the way. And it's not saying that every Christian couple will have scores of children and grandchildren descending on their homes every Christmas. And somebody might say amen to that, right? (laughs) But what do these psalms teach us? What do these psalms teach us? That family blessings are from the Lord. If you have a wonderful family, praise God for them. Joy and peace should characterize the family. That is God's desired will. By the way, in scripture, we have God's determined will and God's desired will. Gravity is God's determined will, that we would have gravity, and we praise the Lord for that. Otherwise, we would be flying around. But then there's his desired will, and he desires things, and he teaches us things. But yet, ultimately, we decide some of those things. And joy and peace should characterize our families. And sometimes that's not always the case in Christian families. The Psalms teach us, these Psalms teach us, that God cares about you as an individual he cares about your home, and he cares about the church. He cares about the nation that we live in. And primarily, of course, the context is the nation of Israel. This was written to the nation of Israel. But obviously, we live in a sinful world. And an evil as evil encroaches upon us, encroaches upon our families, encroaches in our land, the finest saints do not enjoy all the blessings of this psalm. In some cases, they want to be married, but they've never been married. In some cases, they've wanted to have children and have had childless marriages. In other cases, children have died at a young age, or a a spouse has passed away, or a child gets into serious trouble. We all recognize that. I think a good point to make is to quote Martin Luther at this point, the great reformer. Martin Luther made a good point when he said, quote, Let the Lord build the home and keep it. The concern for these matters is his, not yours. In other words, we live verse, lived, uh, verse by verse, a day by day, and let God concern himself with the rest. And so it partially goes back to the very sovereignty of God and his providence, how he is working all things out. Well, we see in Psalm 128, there's a promise of blessings and there's a pronouncement of blessings. And uh, let me read this one portion for you here. And we read this psalm, and as we think through this psalm, even though it's a very short psalm, only six stanzas, if you will, uh, we familiarize uh, familiarize ourselves with uh, the context of the psalm, and we familiarize ourselves with the fact that God wants to bless us. He is blessing us, and how does that work? We realize that blessings are not external to us. Oftentimes, in a very materialistic, self-centered society and culture that we live in, we think that if I just have one more thing, then I will feel blessed, or I will be happy in that. And we think we're going to experience God's blessings if we accumulate more stuff that just lends itself to our own fleshly desires. It's not external. Blessings in Scripture are not external. In fact, if we were in went through the word of God, we would see God is a God of blessing. It begins in Genesis when God, when he created the male and the female, he blessed them. Genesis 128, he gave them his blessings, Adam and Eve. Later on when Abraham, Genesis 12, he promised that I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. There's the promise. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Genesis twelve two. King David, who in so many ways, and embodies the intensity and the joys of faith, wrote many of the Psalms. Uh, He was richer in blessings than any other Israelite, according to the word. So there's a long series of blessings, and yet we don't deny the sorrow that's involved. King David went through great sorrowful times. So did Abraham. Every saint that we know goes through sorrow. And Jesus said in his introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, in the book of Matthew, identifies eight key qualities of life that a person of faith And he announces each one with the word blessed, blessed. We call that the Beatitudes. In fact, clear to the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, when we think about the thunderous book of Revelation, that great prophetic book, there are seven salvos of blessings. They they just roll across that book like a cannonade back and forth across the battlefield in which Jesus Christ completes the victory over sin and establishes his eternal rule. The whole book stands as a framework of blessing to those who would attain it and to those who pay attention. The blessed revelation of the mysteries of God in the word of God. So as we go through that overview of the Bible and God's blessings, we familiar ourselves with those. And we need to realize that a blessing, it can be part of it, but it's not necessarily a run of good luck, even though we don't believe in luck as believers. Uh, It's not just a good day that we're having. One author has identified God's blessings this way. It is an inner strength of the soul and the happiness that it creates, the vital power without which no living being can exist. Happiness cannot be given to a person as something lying outside of themselves. The action of God does not fall outside, but at the very center of the soul. That which it gives us is not something external, but the energy, the power of creating it. The blessing thus comprises the power to live in its deepest and most comprehensive sense. Nothing which belongs to action and to making life real can fall outside of his blessings. Blessing is the vital power without which no living being can exist. It is by this that fills and surrounds the person who is on on this road and this journey of faith. And so the promise and pronouncement of blessings. In verses 1 and 2, if you look at your copy of Scripture, well, first of all, let me just say that the word blessed or happiness occurs four times in this psalm. So you start to understand the theme. We see it in verse 1, verse 2, verse 4, and verse 5. Actually, two different Hebrew words. The first two is the Hebrew word eser. And it can be translated happiness. In fact, verse 1 says, how blessed or how happy is everyone who fears the Lord. The blessings of the individual in verses 1 through 2. First of all, we see that happiness or blessings come with reverence to God, right relationship with God, where he says, how blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Now, I think there's much misunderstanding about that. We think of abject horror and panic, uh, but yet there is a reverence, a right relationship. Fearing God brings us to the awesome attention before the only overwhelming grandeur of God. It shuts up our self-centeredness. We're well aware that there is somebody greater and bigger and more powerful than we are, so they can really see him and listen to him as he speaks. Merciful, life-changing words of forgiveness. First thing to remember, again, is that God is providential. He is constantly caring for you. And he has absolute rule over all his creation for his own glory and for the good of his people. Nothing good comes into your life without, first of all, a good, righteous, perfect God allowing that to come. And so we reverence him. We have right relationship with him. But then it results in obedience habits learned from God look at the second portion of verse 1 who walks in his ways so we have fearing the Lord and walking in his ways will graham scroggie uh, wrote about fearing the Lord he wrote these words the fear is an inward principle the walk is an outward expression no one really fears the Lord who does not walk in his ways the christian life is ethical as well as emotional You know, basically, human beings are a rebellious bunch. We all recognize that. Think about babies who were born. They are born screaming with their fists clenched. And that seems to mark our whole lives, doesn't it? We are in rebellion. When I was in my teens and 20s, of course, I was not a believer in Jesus Christ. I was agnostic, atheistic for a while, then agnostic again, shaking my fist at a God I didn't believe in or said didn't exist. Isn't that interesting? Interesting. And uh, we're forever breaking the rules, trying uh, all sorts of roads, attempting to create our own system of values and truth from scratch. And we see that all through popular media. We see that all over in our culture. And when that happens, we tend to spend most of our time calling someone up to get out of the trouble or repair the damage of our own actions. Then we ask the question, what went wrong? And I remember a quote by H.H. H. Farmer. He said, if you go against the grain of the universe, you'll get splinters. And that's the point. The psalmist announces that those who hold the right attitude here in verse one and act in the appropriate manner will be blessed. The right attitude is the fear of the Lord. This is not the type Uh, of emotion that makes one run away, but it's the acknowledgement of God's central place and power in each one of our lives. Those who fear the Lord will be humble, not proud, will listen to God's laws and advice. Those who fear the Lord will walk in obedience to him. Behind that that metaphor of walking, which, of course, the Apostle Paul uses in the New Testament, uh, walking on a path, the major analogy is the wisdom literature, especially Proverbs chapters 1 through 9. There are two paths defined there. Everybody walks on one or the other of these paths or roadways. Those who are blessed walk in the straight path that leads to life, not the crooked path that leads to death. So those blessings on the individual, there's reverence that results. There's obedience that results, an attitude and a walking. And then uh, thirdly, in verse 2, an enjoyment of labor's fruits, which are a gift of God. Look at verse 2. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy. There's that word again. Same word that's used up in verse 1 is blessed. And it will be well with you. The pronouncement and the promise. The enjoy labor's fruits, a gift from God. So it doesn't mean we sit back and do nothing, does it? Because when we labor, we expect fruit. When farmers go out and labor, they expect a harvest. And that's the picture. And ultimately, what a picture. You know, we think of the agrarian pictures all through Scripture. And, of course, Israel was an agrarian society. And the culture of the Middle East at that time, in fact, probably the whole world, and they would go out and they would plant wheat, and they expected to get a harvest of wheat. But ultimately, it's God who makes the sun shine. It's God who gives the rain. It's God who makes the plant grow from that seed in there. The farmer helps it and encourages it and cultivates it and waits for the harvest, but then the harvest comes. So we enjoy the laborer, the, our labor's fruits, don't we? Because they are ultimately a gift of God. So blessings on the individual, now he moves out in verses 3 and 4 to blessings upon our families, blessings upon our families. We enjoy the benefits bestowed upon Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, basically, and we may be described, also be described looking at the blessings of the covenant in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. In fact, in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, back there in the Old Testament, God was laying out the highways of prophecy that continue all the way through the end of the Bible. He basically told Israel, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will discipline you. And that is the issue that we see all through the Old Testament as God works with Israel And now in the church, we see the great blessings we enjoy because of what God is doing in our lives. But the blessing on the family, first of all, there is fruitfulness. The spouse is the heart of the house. And basically, we see here that uh, the psalmist is addressing the man of the family in this. He's addressing the father, the husband. And he says in verse 3, your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house. And the picture, of course, the vine is a grapevine, in which Israel, they would crush the grapes. They would make wine and it would bring happiness and nurture to their lives. And it was something that they could use in a day-to-day life. And so there is fruitfulness, blessing on the family. And then there is the hopefulness in the second part of verse 3. Your children will be like olive plants around the table. Children are the promise of the future. We think of olive plants, and Israel used olives to crush them and get the oil. It was important to have olive oil always around. And so the children are the promise of the future, always looking forward to the next generation. And, of course, we here at Grace Point Church are looking forward to the next generation because all of us, in one sense, are interim as God gives us our days. We are just simply here in a certain space and time, and God will move us on. And others of younger generations, these, these olive plants will grow up and will be doing the ministry here as God gives us our days if he tarries. Uh, I've known uh, some families that had very large families uh, in the church we served in the upper midwest one of our families had nine children and they were perennially late to worship service now let me explain this to you we met in a in a gymnasium of a school and the door the only door into the gymnasium was right up here imagine that I'm speaking at the pulpit this family of nine was perennially late and they would troop in as we were singing all 11 of them, and find their seat, and at first it irritated me that finally I thought, boy, I'm just so glad they're here. I'm just so glad they're here, but you think of uh, children, that many children, I'm sure that many people looked askance at their decision to have so many children in this culture, in this society, in this day and age. One woman I wrote about, she was the daughter of a family that had, she had seven other siblings, so they had eight children. And she said she got used to hearing remarks in public about the size of her family. And when one, uh, one day her father just took four of them to the grocery store, and a woman sidled up to him and said, are these your children? Are these all your children? And he said, oh, no. He said, they're not all of them. She, she looked at him and kind of questioned him. He said, with a twinkle in his eye, the other four are at home. You know, so just to recognize that olive plants, oil, that these next future are coming along, there is blessing, there is hopefulness in the next generation. In verse 4, not only faithfulness, hopefulness, blessing on the family, but blessedness, a reverent father. Look at verse 4 with me. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. That's a different Hebrew word that's translated into English blessed. It's barak. It also occurs in verse 5. But uh, there is a blessing, and it returns back to verse 1. So how blessed is everyone who fears the Lord? There is the key to this whole psalm is when we fear the Lord, when we walk in his way, when he is the center and central part of our lives, we will be blessed. The promise and the pronouncement, the pronouncement of blessing and then the promise that he gives us. It returns to verse 1 individual family individual blessings family blessings and finally there's this national context in verses five, 5 through 6 when we're in tune with what who God is first of all revealed in his word and what he is doing in our lives and the lives of those around us when we travel the well-trod path or the road of discipleship remember we are learners we are followers if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ you are uh, referred to as a disciple. We all, never grow out of being disciples. We are all growing together in this whole life. It's not a way of boredom or despair or confusion. It's not a miserable groping, but a way of blessing. Sometimes we think that being a Christian is taking stuff away from us that we want, but really God is blessing it. He is adding to our souls. But in verses 5 and 6, there's not only blessings on the individual, See the progression, the individual, the family, and now the nation. Here is a connection, a blessing here. First of all, there is prosperity. Look at verse 5. And the Lord bless you from Zion. And, of course, Zion was the temple mount in Jerusalem, and that was the place where they went up to worship God. So the Lord bless you from there, this blessing, this Barak blessing. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. And then he goes on to say in the first part of verse 6, Indeed, may you see your children's children. In other words, grandchildren. May you see your grandchildren. And then he concludes the psalm talking about Israel itself. Peace be upon Israel. So prosperity and peace. These are blessings. They're not external things. And our happiness, our blessings are not dependent upon how this nation goes. Obviously, we see that Israel failed and was disciplined over the years. And finally, God dispersed them in 70 A.D. through Titus and the Fifth Roman Legion as they destroyed Jerusalem, but regathered them again in 1948 as a national uh, political entity. And uh, they have yet to occupy all the land that God has promised them in the Old Testament. But God is not done with them yet, contrary to some evangelicals, who believe in replacement theology and teach that the church has replaced Israel in God's plan. That is not good Bible study methods. After conferring a blessing on those who fear the Lord, the psalmist requests a blessing on those who hear his words. God blesses from Zion. The blessings include prosperity of Jerusalem, its peace, security, as well as plenty of food. In addition, blessing brings long life, meaning that there is blessing that they see their grandchildren Come into this world, and so ultimately uh, in the context of this, the family unit, the individual, the family unit, had a bearing upon the nation israel, and of course, if they deflected and and uh, went away from what God's will was, there was difficulty in the nation and we see that nationally. we see this nation who drifting morally and spiritually. And yet there is much hope because there is a younger generation coming up that love the Lord Jesus Christ, who are zealous for him, who are accountable to him, and who want to see things change. The central teaching of this psalm, applicable to both our our physical selves and our spiritual selves, is when we turn away from our own self-sufficiency and replace it with faith in God and live out his principles and walk in his way, our activities are not useless, but they are fruitful. They produce the desired result of shalom. They are fruitful because God is at work in them and through them. I was reading a, 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 a Jewish rabbi, just a quote from a Jewish rabbi, and I don't know his name, so I don't know. Maybe I can quote, the, uh, search a quote. But this Jewish rabbi said that uh, when a child of God walks down the road, A thousand angels go before him, crying out and shouting out, make way for the image of God. Make way for the image of God. As we go into 2020, as we walk this path of discipleship, maybe the rabbi is right. I don't know. There's myriads and myriads of angels, and maybe some of them go before us through the world crying, make way for the image of God. You are made in the image of God, and as was uh, mentioned earlier We are also in Christ. We are in Christ. What an amazing thing. So may our gratitude be enlarged and our gratitude is in direct proportion to know what we came from and what God in Jesus Christ has done for us. May we reflect the goodness, the greatness and and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we all display the soil, the lubricant and the glue of thankfulness. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your grace and mercy in our lives. Thank you for this psalm, and thank you for the psalmist, whoever it was, who wrote down your words for us. And Lord, may we always recognize that you are with us, you go before us, you love us, and thank you for your blessings that you give to us. And may we all reflect upon the fact that, do I really fear the Lord? Do I really, in, in awesome reverence before you, do I recognize and have you in the right place in my life, on the throne of my life? And we thank you for this day, in Jesus' name, amen.